0: It's good to see you, and this morning we're going to be reading actually from two passages of Scripture. We're going to read from Acts 14 and 1 Timothy chapter 3. So we're going to begin with Acts 14. And I believe that that is page 923 in your pew Bibles. And I'll explain the context as I begin the sermon, but... Acts 14, verse 21... 22, 23, Uh, Paul and Barnabas are in Derby. It's the far reach of their first missionary journey. And they're about to return, literally turn around, go in reverse, and go back to all these cities where they've been planting churches. And this is what we read. And when they had preached the gospel to that city, which is Derby, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, and to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And the next passage is 1 Timothy, chapter 3. And we'll look at the first eight verses together. And that's page 992 in your pew Bible. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with the conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and into a snare of the devil. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this portion, these portions, really, of your word, and I would ask you now that you would make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, amen. Well, I'm going to begin making some comments, if I could, about Acts 14, the first passage that I read from, and as I indicated, this was the... This is the far reach of Paul's first missionary journey he had uh, Derby was the last city that he he went to on his way out on that journey. There are about seven different cities and uh, Paul and Barnabas together had been planting churches and uh, the amount of time that that took we don't know exactly, but it took months didn't take years. this journey didn't last that long. These were newly formed newly minted Churches And they were not only church plants, so the church themselves were new. These churches were full of new Christians. I mean, nobody but baby Christians, essentially new Christians in that church. So they returned the way they had come. And as verse 22 puts it, they were strengthening the souls of the disciples. They were encouraging them to continue in the faith. And they were saying through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And it's at this point, as Paul is returning, as he's giving these instructions to these new churches, that he uh, undertook what I'm going to call today a very uh, radical experiment. And that radical experiment actually continues to this day. That radical experiment continues in Church of the Atonement. It's an experiment that's grounded in the deepest conviction that the Holy Spirit is in the church and he's with the church and he's working through the church to lead them and reliably to lead them with or without the presence of of an apostle. And so with this conviction, we read, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now, that is a shocking statement. So I want you to think with me for a moment. Just imagine with me, how would you feel being a member of this new congregation, say, in the city of Lystra, which was next to Derby. And you had seen Paul. And you'd heard him. You'd come to faith in Christ. You'd seen what Paul endured and the depth of his courage and his conviction as he'd been stoned, as he'd been dragged out of the city, as he'd been left for dead only to rise up and then to return to the city. Something akin to a resurrection. Maybe he wasn't dead. You'd actually seen Paul... Also perform through Christ's name a miracle, which a man had uh, been unable to walk, unable to use his feet, and yet, and yet Paul had had raised him him up. You've seen uh, you've seen all of this. And how would you feel if you were a member of that church at Lystra, and now you heard Paul say, "I'm not going to be here anymore to lead you," and so. I've appointed uh, Roger and Henry and Siegfried to lead you to carry on in my absence. How would you feel about that? How would you feel about that if you were Roger? Pretty big feet or shoes to fill. <laughs> well, that's what I mean by the radical experience. And I want us to think about it today. I don't think we emphasize I do not think I have emphasized it enough over the church. It's Christ's design that the church would not be led by a ruling class. It would not be led by a royal family. It would not be led by someone claiming to be the representative of Christ among them. There would be no caste system. There would be no division into the laos, Greek term for the people, and the kleros, those people who have received an inheritance, a heritage of power and authority over the laos, the people. There would be no, in other words, laity-clergy distinction. The leaders, the successors to the apostles, were to be appointed from among the people. There was no other group. There was no elite cabal, as James Oliveri might put it. That leadership was to be raised up from within the congregation. And so by radical experiment, I mean that the church is Christ's kingdom was to be governed and led in a way completely new, really, and very different from the nations of the earth. And it must have felt unnerving. Because there was... There was to be no ruling class. The members were to select the church's leaders. But what's more, and this is far more significant, the members were to serve as the church's leaders. And this is true of both the elders and the deacons. And here is my point that I'd like us all to hear today. That in the New Testament church, not just the New Testament era, But in the New Testament church, the responsibility for leading the church is on you. It is on the congregation. And it's critical, it's absolutely critical that you as the congregation own this. It is not a matter of following a convention. It's not a matter even of simply, and I'm... Don't like that phrasing very well, but it's not a matter either of following apostolic practice. It is a matter of following Christ. Now, I think it's completely understandable to think that the responsibility is too daunting, or that the demands are too high, or that the devotion ...that's required is too much to respect... uh, ...too much to expect... ...of individuals in the church. I understand that. I think it's a fairly natural reaction. But that is what brings us to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Further journeys... ...and years later. Maybe Paul has concluded... ...through hard experience that this radical expression or experience of our experiment in apostolic succession is a failure. But that's not what at all what he says. This is what he says as he writes to Timothy. He says, the saying is trustworthy. Which really paraphrased for me is, the saying remains trustworthy. It is as true as it ever was. No matter how many problems you're going through, Timothy, no matter how complex the issues are your church in Ephesus, Timothy, the saying is trustworthy. You You can bank on this. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer or elder, he desires a noble task. Now, I want you to think with me about that, the very beginning of it. He says the saying is trustworthy. This is not a new word. It was a saying. It was a logos. It was like a proverb. Paul uses the same language in First Timothy 1 when he says, this is a trustworthy saying. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It was known in the church. And undoubtedly because it had been Paul's instruction all the way along. And now, what Paul is doing is he is endorsing it again. It is as true now as it ever was. Experience has not disproven this. There is not a better way to go. So here it is the saying if anyone aspires, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble work. Anyone. That means there's no ruling class. That means that to serve as an officer, you don't have to have a, um, you don't have to have some special pedigree. The responsibility to lead is vested in the congregation and in no other group. And you know what's striking, then, and consistent. But what's striking is that when you go on in 1 Timothy 3 and you read the qualifications, whether for an elder or for a deacon, because I'm really talking about the same ethos, the same commitment, you find this idea confirmed. Because the standards that are laid down for an elder or a deacon, for the most part, are not particularly elevated. They're not particularly difficult. As D.A. Carson has pointed out, there, there, there's nothing about having an elite theological education here. There's nothing about having a charismatic personality here. There's nothing about having had success in leading a business. No. How does Paul write about these qualifications? He says they're not to be quarrelsome. Not to be Greedy. Your leaders are to be respectable. They're to be hospitable. They're to be gentle people. They don't have to manage a business or a chain of stores or anything like that. But they do need to manage their families well. They do need to be able to teach, to explain the word of God. They do not have to be perfect. No one is perfect, but they do need to model what Christian living looks like. Of These qualifications, almost none of them are anything uh, that would be a burden because of office. Virtually every one of these things is, not everyone, but virtually every one of them is the same things we're taught all of us to be and aspire to. Who of us isn't taught to be a gentle man or gentle woman? Who of us isn't taught to be uh, hospitable? These qualifications do not involve exceptional gifts. They don't involve charismatic gifts, necessarily. They can, great, but they don't have to. They don't involve extraordinary skills or some sort of special you know, elite training. What they require is deep devotion to Christ, to his word, and to the work of the Holy Spirit and the willingness to be stretched. Paul wrote, if anyone aspires, verb literally means to stretch out. If anyone is willing to stretch himself, if anyone is willing to put himself out to be stretched, as a deacon, as an elder, we have male elders here, we have male and female elders here, based actually on First Timothy as well as other passages, and I will be preaching on that because I'm going to be moving into First Timothy in my next series, Lord willing. But if anyone is willing to stretch themselves out, Paul says, Christ commends it, he commends it. It's not for someone else to do that. And I want you to see that this idea of responsibility for leading the church, resting on the congregation, it really is Christ's design. If you think about it, what, how do we work that as a church? Well, in May, April, something like that, we've established a nominating committee. Ask people if they'd be willing to serve as an elder or serve as a deacon. And that nominating committee literally works for months talking to people. And at the end of the summer, those who have, are open to serving and are willing to serve, they go through training. And then those who are trained go through an interview with a session And when you go through an interview with a session, then the session makes a determination whether to commend those people to the congregation, which it almost, but not always, but almost invariably is done. And then there's a congregational meeting in which you vote on them, and then they're installed. That's our process, but folks, that's not even half of our process. To do this requires really year-round, ceaseless commitment on the part of those who are in leadership to pray for, to approach, to prepare, to encourage, to recruit, to train and examine those who one day might become or will become deacons and elders. It is a big deal for a church to function this way. It is time-consuming. It requires a lot of energy. It requires a great deal of devotion. And it's not just on the leaders of the church, the current leaders, to take this process. Those of you who are teaching children at Sunday school, working with youth, raising up young adults, discipling, mentoring, caring, it's all part of the process. So what we're really looking at here, in Christ's design, is not only the means of church leadership, identifying, and and having leaders in the church, and governing the church, what we're really looking at is an essential component and the backbone of a church's discipleship. Over the years, not all churches function as we do. There are churches that once you're elected to be a deacon or once you're elected to be an elder, you actively serve for the rest of your life or until you die. Whichever comes first. (laughs) And it makes it easy because, you know, those churches only add an elder or a deacon, what, every 15 years or something? And what I think you end up having, this is Kurt's opinion. Some of you have been in church experiences. You won't agree with me. This is what Kurt's opinion is of having been in a church that functioned like that. What you end up having is a ruling class that's almost impossible to break into. And no one's being mentored. Not really. No one's being brought along because there is a power structure that is ingrained with certain personalities. And the church does not change, for better or for worse. Okay, yeah, you don't bring in a corker, but what if you have a corker serving? What if you have someone with a... And you know what? We all have odd personalities. Sorry. So, we're really looking at an absolute essential component and backbone for the church's discipleship. We can do a lot of other things in the way of discipleship, but if we're not doing this, we are not bringing people along in the way that, in terms of opportunity, in terms of the Spirit's leadership, uh, there's this whole. Channel, You know, there's this whole dimension of discipleship that's being left out. It's being omitted. You know, Paul will later exhort Timothy, train yourself for the purpose of godliness. And then i will use this great athletic metaphor. You know, if you're going <clears> to... <throat> if you do physical training and exercise, that has some benefit for you. But, you know, godliness holds benefit in all all kinds of ways and everything. Now, eternity. Well, what I'm talking to you about today, if you think about the church as a church, as, as a body, as an organic living body, this is how the church trains itself. This is, this is the exercise, an incredibly important exercise that is ongoing. We do it again and again and again and again for the purpose of godliness. The only way that an athlete can grow strong, the only way an athlete can become agile, is by taking on weight and, yes, yes, bowing to you yoga practitioners, <laughs> stretching. And whether you're hurling your own weight around a track or you're pumping iron at a gym or you're pulling yourself through water, it is just essential that you take on responsibility you, or you take on weight and you, and, and you be stretched. And this is exactly true spiritually. To be spiritually mature, whether you're going to be an officer someday or, or whatever or not, you have to take on responsibility and you have to stretch and be stretched. And you know what the biggest step is in Exercise. It's no different from the biggest step in leading. It is the first step. It is stepping onto the track. It's getting into the pool. It's strapping yourself into that torture device called an ab cruncher. It is saying yes, and I have to tell you that god 's timing is amazing. I entered this week committed to preaching a sermon about this because we 're in the season when our nominating committee is is deeply involved and Steve Cairns is a chairman uh, uh, I think Mike Parent is co-chairman. I think I got that right. And we have other members of the nominating committee. In fact, if you're here today and you're on the nominating committee, would you just take a moment and stand up? Come on, don't don't be shy. Now, I want to hear a round of applause for these people. Because they work really hard. They work harder than they should have to work. This week, I got a a letter from uh, one of our elders, John Whitman. You all know John Whitman because he's our official church photographer. And because he can't be here today, he gave me permission to read this to you. And uh, I just have to say, you know, I think God's timing is amazing because John did not know I was going to preach this sermon. He did not know it was on my mind. And it was on my heart. I was praying about it. And then this letter comes in on Monday. And I'm simply going to read his letter to you. Dear Pastor Kurt, I know that people are being invited to serve in various capacities in the church. And perhaps a quick word from me, from the pulpit on the subject, of responding to an invitation to serve might be helpful. John can't be here today. That's why I'm doing this. But he gives me permission. Basically, he writes, I'd suggest that people not repeat my mistake of seeing myself as completely unqualified to assume whatever role. By looking at the facts, my logical reasons why I could never perform those duties, by looking at those facts, I slammed the door of decision. And in doing so, I quenched the Holy Spirit, shutting off any possibility of his working within me in a quiet and subtle way. This was the first time, he said, that he was approached to be an elder. The second time, I realized that we all are unqualified and that God will supply what we lack. But we must first step forward in faith and trust. And for me, this became a test of faith. Why, it made no sense at all. I knew I was still unqualified. But eventually... I trusted that God would help me. Nothing logical, nothing rational, just trust that he would somehow give me what I needed at the moment of need. So if you're invited to take on an office, don't make the same mistake that I did. Don't look at the facts and slam the door shut. Leave the door open to the mysterious working of the Holy Spirit in your heart and pray, pray, pray. Let him lead you to a decision. Follow him in trust. And this is really what I'm asking you to do. As our nominating committee is at work, I'm asking that your starting position, that you let your starting position be open, not closed. The Holy Spirit's constantly tapping people to serve. Who are unsuspecting. The Bible's full of this. Let's not quench his work in our life. Be open to a new thing. Yes, I'm saying let's be open to hearing our name being called alongside Roger, Henry, and Siegfried. Let's pray together. Father, we do love you and we thank you for your mercy and your goodness to us in Christ. And uh, I do, with my brothers and sisters here at Atonement, I pray for our nominating committee. I mean, I pray for Steve and for uh, Mike and and Rand and everybody involved in the committee um, that as they approach brothers and sisters in Christ to serve as deacons or to serve as elders, their hearts, our hearts, would be open, really open. We would understand the responsibility of leadership rests on the congregation. This body, there's no other, there's no elite class here. And it's by your design. And it's part of our own discipleship and your sovereign will in our own lives, individually and personally. And then it also blesses the church. It's a great, if radical, experiment. So please help us be open. And I pray this year that the work of the nominating committee, and there are leaders, they are leaders, this book of Hebrews says let their service be a joy and uh, not a burden I pray that their their work this year would not be as burdensome as last year but that regardless you would raise up and bring to us those men those women whom you want to have uh, serve this church and lead as elders or as deacons and we'll be careful to give you the thanks we realize that there's a whole host of saints who've gone before us in the history of this church to lead which is why we're still here and before that all the way back to the apostolic time and Paul's instruction to those churches that he had just, that he had just planted give us the faith, the courage and the conviction of those early and new believers. In Jesus' name, amen.